So those of us who are in Michigan, yeah, we have really long winters. And yesterday we had a, a beautiful day of like 55, 60 degree weather. And this is the perfect time of year when that happens, when we can go out and just do a little bit of winter pruning for certain shrubs um, respond well to that and trees. So Rach and I spent all day yesterday pruning down some really, really big shrubs. And there were four of them, I mean, we did more than four, but there were four of them um, that are all burning bushes, is what they're called. And they had really gotten overgrown. They were like seven feet tall and pretty unwieldy. And so we were able to take those down from seven feet down to like five inches, right? To just like almost a nub. It looks like you're like cutting them down. But with that kind of shrub, it actually is, it's helpful to them. It will completely revitalize. It should make the foliage um, just that much better. And as we were out there working and I've got my saws all, I was thinking a little bit about how this this sort of winter pruning is actually a helpful way to understand Lent. You know, like Steve said, we've eventually entered the Lent season, this 40 days going to Easter. And it's a time when we're like trimming down some of the beliefs or habits that have been unhelpful to us and to others, and then making space for the spirit to sort of rejuvenate our spiritual journey, right? Get us some better foliage again. And so it's it's paring back and making new. And so for this Lent, Ken and I decided to use the Book of Joy by Bishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. I don't know if you can see it with my particular lighting here, but we're going to use this as a scaffolding for our sermons. I know a few of you picked that book up after I, I gave a little sermon paying tribute to Bishop Tutu when he died this last January. So I, I hadn't read it all the way through, and so I went and I looked at it again, and I thought, you know, I do like this book for Lent because it's essentially broken into two parts. So the first part of the book is there's these obstacles to joy, and then there's what the authors call the pillars of joy. And so I think that goes nicely with the theme of like cutting things out that are keeping us from thriving and then opening ourselves to considering some new tools. Um, if you haven't read the book, and you certainly do not have to, um, the way it's set up is it, it's like a record of a few days of conversations that took place between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And there's some additional framing by Douglas Adams, who is, he's the author that put it together. He compiled it and he's a secular Jewish man. And so he jokes that he should have started the book with a Buddhist, a Christian and a Jew walk into a bar. And I actually think that would have made a great title. I'd buy that book. Um, but the book is it's a good model, I think, for how interfaith discussions can take place. If there's this saying in the Proverbs, I'm going to paste that in, Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And I see that in this book. I think there's a lot of agreement. There's some disagreement. But all of it is enveloped in this, this mutual respect of one another and an invitation for us to learn from people of other faiths. And I, that's one of the values of our church. So I want to start us out this week by talking about two of the obstacles to joy that are identified by Bishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And those two are anger and despair. Type that in. And we'll have a little bit more of a focus on anger. So anger and despair are both natural emotions, right? Those are usually responses to things that are going on around us. And so they're not bad in and of themselves. But sometimes those emotions can become obstacles to joy if they start to consume us. 
So I want to start with a story that is in all four of the Gospels. And it's a story where Jesus is depicted as getting incredibly angry at the people who were changing money in the temple on the grounds. Right. So when people would come to the temple, like the big temple in Jerusalem to worship, many of them were coming coming from quite a distance away. And so they often had Roman money or they had other foreign currency on them. But in the temple, they were only allowed to use Hebrew money to purchase animals for sacrifice and other things. And so the people who were coming, they had to exchange their currency when they arrived. And the money changers would then take a cut of that exchange. And I suspect that they sometimes took a large cut given Jesus's reaction to it. I was trying to think about what, what that might be like today. And I think the way they skimmed money off of people as being a little bit of what like maybe credit card companies do when they have like 20% interest for people who have really poor credit or maybe some of the like so-called free stock trading apps like Robinhood who are actually taking a cut behind the scenes, right? It's like exploitative skimming. And so the system that's going on in the temple most affected the poor and it affected all foreigners. And so Jesus comes in and he yells, I'm gonna put this into the, into the chat. He says, my house is a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And besides being mad, the, the poor and the foreigners were being taken advantage of. Jesus also seems to be angry because of where these money changer, changers had set up shop. Right? They, they'd set up their operation in the courtyard of the Gentiles, right? effectively taking over the space where the non-Jewish people came to worship so that there was no place for them to do so. Right, so it was excluding non-Jewish people from having a place. And he was so mad that he sat down and he made a whip. It's a pretty intense thought. This is from John 2. So he, Jesus, made a whip out of cords and drove them all away from the temple courts. I'm guessing the whip was for the animals, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of money changers and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market, right? Jesus's anger here, I think, is a natural response to the injustices that he saw. And it's what I would describe as short, hot anger. I'll put that down here, short, hot anger, right? It's short. Because we know like the vast majority of stories that we have about Jesus do not show him like living in this state of perpetual anger, right? It was situational and it was hot anger because it was like a form of rage, right? It was explosive and it achieved what he wanted, which was to make a scene, to make a statement about injustice without actually harming anyone. And at least temporarily, it halted the harm that was being done. But if hot anger isn't short, like if it becomes long hot anger, it can start to do real damage to us and to people and to the systems around us, right? It can start to kind of eat us up inside. It can harm our health. It can increase our blood pressure in large groups um, like nation states or big organizations. Long hot anger can be very destructive. Um, and so I think this long, hot anger 
is a lot of what the Dalai Lama and Bishop Tutu are describing when they talk about the kind of anger that's an obstacle to joy, right? It's not the short burst like we see with Jesus in the temple, but it's, it's a destructive rage that's always just kind of lurking near the surface. So I found that without distinguishing the kind of anger that they were addressing, I found myself wanting to sort of jump into their conversation, you know, and ask some questions, maybe push back on some things. And I think that's okay, right? You might feel that way too. And so when I find myself feeling that way, when I'm either talking with people I respect or reading a book like this, I think it causes me then to just kind of pay attention and to think through, okay, why, why do I find myself wanting to add something or argue? And then allowing myself to really be challenged to really listen to what they're saying, right? That's the iron sharpening iron. And Bishop Tutu, I think, is really good at affirming that anger is a natural emotion and that we shouldn't judge ourselves for it, right? The anger within boundaries is healthy, right? Hot, short anger, like what Jesus was experiencing there, that's a response to injustice. And like when you feel a flare of anger like that, it's telling your body, like, pay attention, right? It lets you know your, your boundaries are being violated or maybe that you're being taken advantage of or somebody you know is being taken advantage of. And so that kind of anger can kind of compel us to push off someone who's violating us and to reestablish boundaries, right? That's about safety. Um, there's also a difference, I think, between hot and cold anger, right? So hot anger is like a volcano, but cold anger is directed towards something productive, right? Changing norms and laws, leadership, culture, healing broken relationships, right? So if hot anger is like that volcano, cold anger might be more like, like a river that's cutting through stone and over time it's, it's doing the impossible, right? It's cutting a new path. Cold anger can transform us and the world for the better. And so long cold anger can be helpful in keeping that more ruinous form of anger from like eating us alive, from experiencing joy. And so for me, the question becomes, or the questions, I'll put them in the chat. How can anger drive me, but not rule me? How can anger be productive, not destructive? Right, so when talking about what I'm calling long, hot anger, right? The kind that's unhelpful to us, Bishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama offer, I think some similar wisdom for us for how to manage it. So the first thing they, they both agree on is that feeling connected to others is crucial for dealing with that kind of long anger, right? So if you find yourself mad just all of the time and easily set off, they're saying it, it can be a helpful practice to just remind yourself you're not the only person who has experienced this. You're not the only person who's witnessed this kind of injustice. You're not the only person who's been through this sort of family mess. We're not alone. And they were adding to that comparison suffering isn't helpful, right? So saying something like, well, I shouldn't be angry because I'm not suffering as much as, you know, say the Ukrainians are right now. So that's not helpful because it just dismisses our emotions. And it's, it's really never helpful to rank kind of like who's allowed to suffer or who's allowed to be mad, right? So it, it's not a practice of comparing our anger to others, but experiencing other people in solidarity with us in that anger, right? That, that there's comfort in that shared humanity that gives some psychic relief. 
And in that same vein, um, just talking about it with others has that connecting effect, whether that's a therapist or friends or your partner, right? That we need connection and that that's helpful. The second thing that both the Bishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama talk about is how doing something active in response to anger is helpful. So I thought it might be easiest if I give a personal example um, of how I've been sort of transforming some of my own long, hot anger into cold, slow anger. So I'm going to kind of out myself here. During the pandemic, I dug deep into the plumbing of America's financial systems. I, I call it, I jokingly call it, it's my pandemic rabbit hole <laughs> that I went down. I think a lot of people found a pandemic rabbit hole. And I learned far more about the problems of our financial markets than I ever thought I would ever care about. And there's a group of people on, yes, Reddit, who spent the last year and a half just like digging in and reading primary sources together about the market and academic papers and crowdsourcing information for peer review and editing, hosting experts in the field who have been working for financial reforms. We even created our own online library of research. And that sounds a little weird, but for me, it's been validating. Um, this last week, John Stewart did an episode on us and on the problems that have been uncovered in this particular group on Reddit. So that's on Apple TV right now, if you're a John Stewart fan. And HBO just released a two-part documentary. And so what I've learned about the extreme inequities of the market has really infuriated me. But I've been able to transform and like transition that anger from that like hot volcano type to the cold type, one by connecting with people who are doing similar work and by doing something about it. Um, and let me tell you, it's complicated and it's boring which is why most people don't get involved. Like it's a complicated, boring subject. Um, but I've tried to channel these weird things that I've learned within this board complicated thing by filing complaints with the SEC. Over the last few years, I've written letters, I've attended online SEC meetings open to the public, this is all my nerd. I've written people on the House Financial Committee and Congress and attended some of their online meetings. And I know that I can't do everything. You know, I can't change anything on my own. None of us can, but I can do a few things. And how I manage that is I do what I can, not what I can't. And that's helpful to me. And when I do that, that clears space in my head and in other parts of my life for me to feel joy, right? It channels it or focuses it on like, I can do this. And now I can sit back and say, I've done something. So connect and do something, even if it's something small. And I was thinking it's not just about like big injustices. This is this is true about things in our work or our extended family where we experience a lot of anger. And a lot of it is um, circumstances that are sometimes beyond our control. You know, like I've, I've got a sister and I won't go into the details, but who maybe has jeopardized her access to her kids and that affects me. And so I it's out of my control, but I try to think, okay, what could I do? I can write letters to my nieces, right? So it's like identifying something you can do and then being able to do that. So connect with others, do something if you can, even if it's small. And then the third thing that they offered was Bishop Tutu talks about how he yells at God when he's mad. And I got a little bit of kick out of the fact the Dalai Lama piped in and said, you know, Buddha's yell at the Buddha. <laughs> so we're not so different. 
it is completely fine to rail at God. I know Ken has preached about that many times, and the Creator can take it. And there are lots of Psalms to help us out. So that's anger, but I also said I, I would address despair a little bit here as an obstacle to joy. And in many ways, I think the wisdom that these two leaders provide for despair is pretty similar to that of anger. Connect with others, and if the despair comes from a sense of overall suffering in the world, do something constructive, even if it's small, and that that's helpful in alleviating like sort of that ennui. Um, so like if you're feeling despair about what's happening in the Ukraine, which I think many people are, it's talk about it and see if there's something that can allow you to respond in some way. It's very possible we are going to have a pretty big influx of Ukrainian refugees in our area in the next couple of years. And so I even look at the things that we're doing to help the family from um, resettle who are from Afghanistan could be a potential model for, you know, something down the line as well. So the thing that I wish that the book had better acknowledged, I just, this is more of like a pastoral note. Um, I wish that it better acknowledged that depression and despair have some overlap, right? And, and depression can be the result of trauma and of chemical imbalances in our bodies. And so sometimes despair is beyond our control and needs professional help or medication. And that is okay, right? I'm a person, I've taken medication to help with anxiety and depression in the past. I don't currently, but I have. And so I, I like fully affirm those things. There's a little bit of talk in the book about like, training our minds to not feel anger or despair as deeply and that felt a little bit victim blaming to me like if you experience despair maybe you, you just need to train your mind better um so i noted my reaction to it and i tried not to immediately judge it or dismiss that idea but i think i can just say like at least from how i understand it right now i disagree and that's okay i disagree with how i'm understanding it and I know that maybe if I was given more time to understand what was being said more fully, maybe I would have different thoughts. And that's okay too, right? We're, we're not, we're allowed to disagree um, and not agree with everything that we hear or that we learn, right? Even if we're reading books together as a church, right? There's a lot that I can find beneficial in a book like this. And then, you know, you take the wheat and you throw off the chafe, you know, right? To use like bible -y language, chaff, chafe, chaff probably. But the bottom line um, that I think they're trying to help us see is that anger and despair are natural emotions and they can consume us. And if they do, that can really prevent us from experiencing joy in our lives. And so the best ways we can keep that from happening, experience solidarity with other humans who feel these things, rail at God or the Buddha or an external ego or whatever it is that is helpful to you, seek professional help if you need, um, and then find ways to respond about what's making us unhappy to try and create the world slowly to be a more just place. So with that, I think we're going to take a couple of minutes here with our meditation. Um, if you're new, we often do a minute or two of silence or meditation on a scripture. I thought we would just meditate on this, this verse from the Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And maybe just take that proverb and get it down into our spirits. And so what I would invite you to do is just get comfortable. If you'd like, take a couple of deep breaths. And then over the next minute or so, as you're breathing, maybe on the in-breath, just meditate on as iron sharpens iron. And as you breathe out, 
so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And I'll let you know when that minute is done. Go ahead. So Spirit, we ask that you would help us to be open um, to being sharpened, um, that you would put others in our paths who can help us grow and learn that, you know, just like getting a good winter pruning during Lent, that you will help us trim off the things that are less helpful to us so that we can, um, we can really flourish and learn to understand you better and reflect you even better in this world. Amen.